Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I humbly try to read through the entire American tradition using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, we will be continuing our investigation of Frank Norris's brilliant masterpiece, The Octopus. We'll be beginning with Book 2, Chapter 1. Um, but first, I'd like to talk a little bit about what came earlier in the novel. Uh, this novel, The Octopus, is about the ranchers of the San Joaquin Valley, the wheat ranchers in particular, and then the people around them in their communities. Um, the other major character in the book is the railroad and the agents that work for the railroad. Our characters are under intense threat from the, the, the railroad. Uh, really in two ways. One is that they control the freight rates, which basically controls how much profit um, our care, our heroes, our, our, these ranchers will make uh, in a year. And it's a bumper year. It's, going to, it's planned to be a bumper year. So they are, really are invested in having a good return on their profit, but a high freight rate will ruin that. The second way they're a threat to the ranchers is that they own most of the land. The land was given to them by the U.S. government, and the ranchers are essentially squatters on this, on this land. Um, they were promised to be sold this land at a future date at $2.50 an acre. However, as book one ends, they just realize that they're being sold that land at a, in a, in, at a rate that includes all the improvements made by the ranchers themselves, up to th $20 or $30 an acre. This is beyond the means of most of them to pay, um, and it's purely theft from their point of view. Um, now, of course, what the railroad can say is, this is just the market value, we own this land, Plus, it wouldn't be nearly as valuable if not for the railroad itself. Um, we have uh, the characters are 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 I are mostly ranchers and their families and the people surrounding them. And if you want to know more about them, go back and listen to the first episode on the octopus. Um, I actually encourage you to, read, to listen to both of the previous um, episodes before moving on to this one. Okay, so um, moving on with chap chapter one of book two. In this chapter, we get our first look at Lyman Derrick. This is the son of Magnus Derrick. Now, now Magnus Derrick, as I said before in the previous episodes, is the kind of the feudal lord. Uh, he's got the biggest ranch land. He's got 10,000 acres. His name, of course, is Magnus, which suggests authority and almost feudal or a Roman authority. Um, his big focus is on the morality of his life, and he wants to live a moral life and have everything legal and up and up, and he's greatly worried by the strategy of the ranchers to basically influence elections, bribe politicians, and get their people on the Interstate Commerce Commission, which he hopes will, will lower the rates. But he eventually gets forced into a scheme to bribe, um, and this weighs heavy on his chest. His son is Lyman Derrick. Um, he's nothing like his father or even his brother. His brother is a hardworking, uh, loyal family member who manages the ranch. If we would want to map out the Derrick family, we find that Magnus is the feudal lord, uh, the sign, he's a sign of the old. His ranch is literally called the dead, Los Muertos Rancho. Heron is, on the other hand, a practical manager, but he's loyal to the old way, uh, mostly. He's, he's kind of the, the sign that the old way could continue. Um, even though he's more practical, he does have a, more of a business sense than perhaps his father does. Lyman, on the other hand, is of the new age. He's totally lacking loyalty except to money. In this chapter, we see Lyman at work. We find that he was put on the board of commissioners 
for setting the railroad rates, which is exactly what the ranchers wanted. They wanted to get their people on there. They could set the rail, rail rates. But specifically, they wanted them reduced 10% for the San Joaquin Valley. The campaign that got him elected was corrupt. The seat was bought by the ranchers of the San Joaquin Valley um, for thousands of dollars. The league, in general, was unsure of the full corruption, thinking the election was honorable and that Lyman was a true ally of the ranchers. We get a quick window into Mag Magnus's turmoil of being drawn to, into this corruption. This is on page 808 of the Library of America version. And this is, this is a description of Magnus's anguish over being uh, drawn into this corrupt scheme. For a whole week after the consummation of the, this part of the deal, Magnus had kept to his house, refusing to be seen, alleging that he was ill, which was not far from the truth. The shame of the business, the loathing of which he had done, were to him things unspeakable. He could no longer look Heron in the face. He began a course of deception with his wife. More than once he had resolved to break with the whole affair, resigning his position, allowing the others to proceed with them. But now it was too late. He had pledged. He had joined the League. He was its chief, and his defection might mean its disintegration at the very time when it needed all its strength to fight the land cases. Um, so that's the situation that poor... Uh, uh, Magnus Derrick is in. It seems the plan seems to work though. Uh, and Lyman and another commissioner is pledged to work towards this goal of the of the ranchers is ten percent reduction in rates for the San Joaquin. So it seems he's on their side. Um, Magnus, uh, his son Heron, and their I guess protege Presley visit. Lyman in his office, and they discuss how the ranchers cannot afford to buy the land sold to them by the railroad at about 20 to $30 an acre, and they're holding out for legal cases that are going through the court system and will get to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the danger is, is that the railroad will sell the land, that the ranchers squat to dummy buyers set up by the, the railroad itself, and then simply occupy that land, seizing the, the crops and, and the improvements made by the ranchers. So that's kind of the, the, the anxiety about this. But they're hoping that all, anything decisive will be held off until the Supreme Court decides. But neither can any leaguer lease the land, uh, essentially lease it uh, from the railroad, because doing so would admit that the railroad has a right to the land. So uh, they choose to remain as squatters for really the political image of it. They have lunch and discuss other business. Lyman is incredibly cagey the entire time, making sure it's clear that there are no there are limits to what he can do. He's always saying, well, we don't expect too much. You know, it's baby steps. Uh, maybe we have to think three, four years down the line. So he's very cagey about what he can accomplish. At lunch, they run, run into a character who I think is a new character by this point in the story, Cedar Quist. He's the head of a shipping company. And his interest in the ranchers is largely about the future of the business in the Far East. And this is a really fascinating section uh, for me. Cedar Quist is actually a pretty interesting character in the novel. He seems to be pretty open about the power and corruption of the railroads and seems to offer the ranchers a way out. He's in many ways the Buck Annixter of kind of the other side of the picture. If you got the transportation and the producers and, and Annixter is the practical realist of the producers. Cedar Quist is the practical voice of the of the shippers um, and here's what he says he says this to to uh magnus derrick if i were to name one crying evil of american life mr derrick it would be the indifference of the better people to public affairs it is so in all our great centers 
There are other great trusts, God knows, in, in the United States, besides our own dear PNSW Railroad. Every state has its own grievance. If it's not an oil trust, it's a sugar trust, or an oil trust or an individual trust that exploits the people. Because the people allow it. The indifference of the people is the opportunity of the despot. It is as true that the whole of life than the part, and the maxim is so old that it is trite. It is laughable. It is neglected and disused for the sake of some new ingenious and complicated theory, some wonderful scheme of reorganization. But the fact remains, nevertheless, simple, fundamental, everlasting. The people have but to say no, and not the strongest tyranny, political, religious, or financial that was ever organized could survive one week. Um, that's, he kind of gives the ranchers their escape route that basically they need to organize and resist. Now, is that going to be enough is a question that I think Norris answers by the end of the novel. He also suggests another plan to escape the burden of the railroad. And this is the China market They're in California, by the way. And rather than shipping their wheat across the nation to, to Chicago, to the grain elevators there, why not ship it on boats made by our good friend Cedar Quisk to the China market? Now, at this time in American history, the United States is becoming a global power, right? Uh, the, this was written in 1902. So by this point, the United States had already occupied those islands in the Pacific. That'd be the kind of the heart of the American overseas empire. Um, they didn't really get an imperial foot in China the way France and Britain and Germany did. So the U.S. policy was, was called the open door policy, that China should essentially be open uh, to all markets, or at the very least, any special privileges that an imperial power from Europe gets in China, the U.S. should get the same. Um, China was very big in American empire, uh, both from kind of the missionary aspect and the commercial aspect. Uh, actually, if we go back to the earliest days of American empire, to the sea otter fur trade and the, the first shipping uh, between the United States and, and China goes back to the 1780s. Uh, so China's always been a big part of American global capitalism, uh, and it certainly became more so in later years. And, you know, one of the reasons China's going to become an ally of the United States in the Pacific War is because of this belief that China is this potential source of souls, an endless source of markets, uh, an endless source of profit for American capitalism. Now, what this conversation reveals is that the story Frank Norris is telling is really a story of global capitalism. It's not merely an American story. The reach of the octopus is indeed far and brutal. Magnus is fascinated by Cedar Quisk, indeed nearly seduced. We we'll also learn that Presley at this time has given up writing his epic of the West. He had, Early in the novel, he had this idea of writing an epic poem that would uh, kind of describe the conquest of the West by these hardworking frontiersmen. And this was going to be his epic of the West. He's given that up, and he just committed himself to writing a new story called The Toilers. It would be socialist in tone and focus on the powers of the rich. Um, they meet Mrs. Cedarquisk, and with Mrs. Cedarquisk, they discuss the famine in India. Um, now, if you want to know more about these famines of the late 19th and early 20th century uh, in India and in other places of Asia and Africa, I urge you to read Mike Davis's wonderful book, Late Victorian Holocausts. And in that book, he lays out in uh, a lot of detail how these famines that killed tens of millions of people were, were essentially man-made. They were due to imperialist powers destroying the markets of India and to a lesser degree East Africa, but particularly India uh, and China, which were devoted to, among other things, uh, 
preparing for famines. You know, they had the El Nino cycle, so that these people knew these famines were coming. The imperialist powers uh, challenged that. I think one example he gives of this is how the British taxed irrigation in India as an improvement on land, while the Mughal Empire before that had actually made that a tax-exempt thing. Um, so a result of that was fewer Indians invested in new irrigation, and that made India more susceptible to famines. Anyways, but do look at that book, Late Victorian Holocausts. It's, it's really good on this. Now, the chapter ends with this seduction of Magnus Derrick, dreaming of the China market. In spite of himself, Magnus paled. Heron shut his teeth with an oath. Their exaltation of the previous moment collapsed like a pyramid of cards. The vision of a new movement of the wheat, the conquest of the East, the invasion of the Orient, seemed only the flimsiest mockery. With a bird's wrench, they were snatched back to reality. Between them and this vision, between the fecund San Joaquin, reeking with fruitfulness, and the millions of Asians crowding towards the verge of starvation, lay the iron-hearted monster of steel and steam, implacable, insatiable, huge. Its entrails gorged with the lifeblood that it sucked from the entire commonwealth. Its ever-hungry mouth glutted with the harvests that should have fed the famished bellies of the whole world of the Orient. So it ends on kind of a down note. Uh, they have this dream that maybe this is their escape route, but then at the, in the end they realize they will still be dependent on the octopus for the transportation of their wheat. As long as they have to get their wheat to market, they're going to be dependent on other people's powers. Uh, so that ends chapter one of book two. Chapter two of book two opens in the Kian Sabe ranch, and this is our Kind of, I think he's the hero of the novel, Buck Annixter. Uh, maybe someone will disagree with me, but I, I think he's really the, the moral center of the novel in a lot of ways. As the chapter opens, Annixter openly, openly proposes to Hilma, who he has fallen in love with. But he doesn't propose marriage, and he tries to talk around it, and it's a really kind of funny, awkward conversation. Um, he suggests setting her up in a home in Bonneville in the nearby town and basically make her his mistress. But Hilma is insisting on marriage, and it's a nice little playful back and forth where, you know, he's like, well, I love you, Hilma, and I want to be with you. And why don't you, you know, why don't you live in this house in Bonneville? And it's like, well, why when I live with you, you'd be my husband. And they, you know, the, the conversation goes on this way, and it ends pretty awkwardly where Hilma, of course, is utterly embarrassed at the thought of being Annixter's essentially mistress. Um, so anyways, Annixter is embarrassed and goes on with his day. He meets, um, actually in the book, Annixter has a lot of these busy days where he travels around and kind of tours the region. Uh, he goes with, uh, meets up with Dyke in Bonneville, and Dyke has gone there to check on freight rates. Uh, this has been a kind of a subplot of the novel is that Dyke is a former engineer who's taken up hop farming, farming of hops. He thinks hops will kind of be under the radar of wheat and not be a big burden uh, for the, the railroads. So I think he can get a kind of a cheap rate um, for hops. He's confident that he'll have a bumper crop as well. And there's been a whore, poor hops harvest in Germany. So he should be able to make plenty of money. However, he's still on the fence about the railroad. Um, he is an interesting character because he's one of the last to see the railroad as an evil. But he's been the one who's kind of been screwed by the railroad again and again. He, he was originally fired, even though he scabbed for the railroad during a strike that happened before the events of the novel. Um, so he's at the, 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 the freight office. And here's what Norris writes. Dyke looked at him with attention. There was the enemy, the representative of the trust, 
with which Derek's league was locking horns. The great struggle, which began to invest the combatants with interest. Daily, almost hourly, Dyke was in touch with the ranchers, the wheat growers. He heard their denunciations, their growls of exasperation and defiance. He here was the other side, this placid fat man with a stiff straw hat and a linen vest, who never lost his temper, who smiled affably upon his enemies, giving them good advice, commiserating with them in one defeat after another, never ruffled, never excited, sure of his power, conscious that back of him was the machine, the colossal force, the inexhaustible coffers of the mighty organization, vomiting millions to the league's thousands. So he realizes the powers they're up against, but he doesn't really come off uh, against them. He doesn't join the league uh, that in particular. He asks about the freight rates. He thinks he can get the rate down to uh, a dollar or one, 1. 1.5 cents per pound because um, he's going to have a big harvest and he thinks he can kind of bulk them down to a, a better rate. But then he's told that the rate is five cents and the uh, the guy he talks to kind of laughs. Well, maybe I can negotiate. You can negotiate me down to 4.5 cents, but not 1.5. Um, this essentially accounts for the entire profit from the hops farm that Dyke was counting on uh, for his survival. He had a, His farm was mortgaged at this point. So if he doesn't get a good harvest, doesn't get a good payback for the harvest, he's basically screwed. Um, he was counting on like a two two cent rate that's what he got quoted earlier but the rate had changed uh it, the reason it changed is because the railroad knew about the poor harvests on hops in germany and simply said you should have got a higher uh sale price for your your hops unfortunately dyke was already contracted for i think five cents a pound the, pretty much the what he was going to get is the cost of the freight uh, so there's no reason for him to really continue farming at all it would leave him in debt thanks to the mortgage on his farm that he'd be unable to pay off so Dyke is at this point just ruined. Uh, he, you know, there's really no more hope for him at this point. Um, but from the railroad's point of view, it matters little. They will charge what the market can bear, and the price of hops going up, sh you know, allows them to do that. Dyke's contracted sale of hops was just too low, uh, and that's not the business of the railroad, and that's what he's told. Uh, so he instantly, by the end of a few pages, becomes uh, from a fence sitter to being a, an out outright enemy of the railroad. Um, he thinks, oh, for a moment to have his hand upon the throat of S. Behrman, wringing the breath from him, wrenching out the red life of him, staining the street with the blood sucked uh, from the veins of the people. All right, so we next see Dyke at the Carraher Bar. Carraher is like the local barkeep, uh, and he's an anarchist, um, and he's drinking away his sorrows. Norris makes it very clear that Dyke was never a drinker before. He was, in fact, an open teetotaler. He even at uh, the community parties, he refused to drink. Um, and he might be the only one, I think, in the whole region that does refuses to drink. Anyway, he's getting drunk now. Um, and we find that Carraher is a communist. And he's been talking pretty openly about communism and anarchism with his patrons. And he gives Dyke and Presley a speech that's um, basically arguing... I'm not going to read the thing for you, but it's on page 860 of the Library of America version if you want to look it up yourself. He basically says that the railroad's going to get you, and the only way we can resist is by essentially violence or organization. Um, you know, they might not screw you this year, but they're going to get you next year or the year after. It's an inevitability. And um, so this kind of radical talk is, is, is beginning to become a larger part of, of, of the novel. Um, and disillusioned people like Presley are attracted to this. Uh, people who are totally ruined, like Dyke, are attracted to it. 
Um, the people like Annixter and, and Magnus Derek, who have a little bit more wealth, they have land, they have the big wheat harvest. In a sense, they might have more to lose, but um, they also have farther to fall. So um, they are less radical and they're trying to work through the political system. But we're, we're starting to get simmering radicalism. And I, I think this might be an image of the American political environment at the turn of the century as well. Um, you have the kind of the progressives who want to reform the system from the state level or the federal level. But you also have groups like the IWW and other radical groups demanding more dramatic change. Um, and whose who's affiliates with one or the other really depends on their status in life and and what they think their options are. So Annixter returns to Kiansabi after this, and he finds that Hilma and the trees, the entire family, had gone away. He thinks about Hilma and decides that he loves her. His blossoming love, love is directly contrasted with the blossoming of wheat. And it's a nice little passage here. Um, Abruptly, there was presented to his mind's eyes a picture of the years to come. If he now should follow his best, his highest, his most unselfish impulse. He saw Hilma, his own, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, all barriers down between them. He giving himself to her freely, as nobly as she had given herself to him. By a supreme effort, not of will, but of the emotion, he fought his way across a vast gulf that, for a time, he gaped between Hilma and the idea of his marriage. Instantly, like the swift blending of beautiful colors, like the harmony of the beautiful chords of music, the two ideas melted into one. And in that moment, into his harsh, unlovely world, a new idea was born. Annixter suddenly stood upright, a mighty tenderness, a gentleness of spirit, such as he had never conceived of, in his own heart, strained, swelled, and in a moment seemed to burst. Out of the dark furrows of his soul came from the deep, rugged recesses of being, something rose expanding. He opened his arms wide. An immense happiness overpowered him. Actual tears came to his eyes. Without knowing why, he was not ashamed of it. This poor, crude fellow, harsh, hard, narrow, with his unlovely nature, his fierce truculency, his selfishness, his obstinacy, abruptly knew that all the sweetness of life, all the great vivifying eternal force of humanity had burst into life within him. And then he openly, verbally declares his love for, for, for Hilma. Um, yeah, I guess earlier I may have said he, he said he loved her, but he was saying he just kind of liked her and, you know, basically wanted her as a mistress. But it's here he declares his love a little bit later in the novel. Um, okay, so that ends chapter two of book three, uh, book two, chapter two of book two. Um, and in, in, in this chapter, we see kind of the, the emergent, like, uh, Annixter almost completing his character art, finding out he loves Hilma and the softening of his character. But we also find Dyke, uh, who is ruined and becomes much harder and angrier. And, and uh, by you know later in the novel, we'll see his fate. So book two, chapter three. This chapter opens with Presley working on his epic poem, The Toilers. He thinks on its themes and he thinks of how much more necessary the work was compared to what he now sees as a childish endeavor, the epic of the West. And he discusses it with Vaname, who is Norris's example of the rule mystic here. And I, I talk about him in the previous episodes, so you can go back and, and, and look there for a little bit more about Vaname. Vaname tells Presley that he should publish the work in the newspaper so that people can read it. Uh, and this is something that the intellectual Presley is a bit unsure about. He, you know, he's uh, he's not on a tenure clock or anything like that, but he is 
thinking of publishing in like the literary magazines and he just assumes that's the proper place to publish poetry um, but Vanamy says essentially you know this is you really want this work to be about the people you really want to help the people you want to raise their consciousness you got to publish it in places they'll read it so publish it in the newspaper um, and he does do this he does send off the toilers to the newspapers where it gets published and it gets widely read and you know throughout the later part of the novel we'll see many references to the toilers being made even some of the railroad people read it and comment on it and respond to it so the toilers kind of becomes a character of its own later in the novel but Vanamy here is telling him he needs to forsake the literary audience and directly address the comic common folk or there's really no point in writing anything at all and you know amen to that um we certainly live in an era of, of over-publishing in, in academia, and the ten, you know, the tenure clock is certainly contributing to that. Um, it's unfortunate, but I guess it's the world we live in. Now, what follows is an exploration of Vanamy's mysticism as he walks through the ranches, um, and there's a kind of a location I don't think I've talked about before, but it's the seed ranch, and and you know this is where they raise flowers and other vegetables and things for their seeds, which they're then packaged. Um, this becomes a symbol for him of the universal cycle of life and death. Um, and one thing that Vanamy has been dealing with is the death of his youthful childhood, not childhood, but his teenage lover, Angela. Um, and he's never really, even 15 years later, come to terms with her death. He tries Christianity in an earlier chapter. He goes to see the the priest and the priest talks with him about the problem of evil uh why would god do these kinds of evil things um allow bad things to happen um, but it doesn't work for him he f so but it's not christianity that saves him in the end but it is the wheat and it's a really wonderful way to end this this relatively short chapter um so he's walking through the seed ranch he's walking through the through the whole ranches as the whole seeing the wheat seeing it growing up and maturing and he gets into his head this idea of this, this cycle of, of life and death is really um, the fundamental law of the universe, the, the cycle of success and failure. Um, page 889, this is, I think, the last page of that chapter. There it was, the wheat, the wheat, in the night it had come up. It was there, everywhere, from margin to margin of the horizon. The earth, long empty, teemed with green life. Once more, the pendulum of the season swung in its mighty arc, from death back to life, life out of death, eternity rising out from dissolution. There was the lesson. Angeli was not the symbol, but the proof of immortality. The sea dying, rotting, and corrupting in the earth, rising again in life unconquerable and in inimmaculate purity. Angeli dying as she gave birth to her little daughter, life springing from her death, the pure unconquerable coming forth from the defiled. Why had he not known the knowledge of God? Though fool, that which thou soweth is not quickened except it die. So the seed had died, so died Angeli. And there which thou soweth, thou soweth not the body that shall be but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or some other grain. The wheat called forth out of darkness, from out of the grip of the earth, of the grave, from out corruption, rose triumphant in life and light. So Angeli, so life, so also the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown as weakness, sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Death was swallowed up in the victory. Um, now here's one, another way out perhaps. So we actually have a couple ways out given in these three chapters. We have, uh, I guess the personal, 
you know, Annixter finding love and companionship in, in Hilma Tree, we have maybe the, the, the more capitalist way of, of maybe expanding markets, right? Find new markets. That's, I guess, the, the line of the global capitalist class. You know, there's always success in breaking out a trade barrier, you know, open up a new market somewhere else. That will solve all our problems. And then we have this kind of mystical, more religious uh, solution to the problem of seeing the cycles of life in broader terms. Of course, that's not going to save anyone's farm in the short term, but maybe in the long term, there's hope. Um, in in just faith in nature. Now, despite Derek Dyke's fall, I think we're in a quite optimistic part of the story. Uh, we can still have faith at the legal triumph. Uh, we might miss distrust Lyman Derek and his intentions, but you know maybe he'll still side with the ranchers. Uh, he is promising to try to lower the rates. Annixter has finally been able to confess his love for Hilma. Vanna May understands the cycle of life and death in new ways and is able to come to terms with uh, his loss. Presley has been politicized and has tossed out his silly work for a serious political one, which he wants to address directly to the people. And even Dyke's story revealed the important hope that comes through unity and solidarity. He is on the losing end in part because he didn't listen to the other ranchers. He didn't listen to Annixter who warned him. He didn't join the league, so he's helpless. So even though Dyke failed, his story is a lesson uh, of the need for unity. The other ranchers work together. Um, Dyke, by keeping the faith in the system, is destroyed. But our other characters are in a position to resist. So yeah, Dyke may be a, a, a lost cause here, but he may not be the end for the whole San Joaquin Valley. We even see the future in the ranchers of the, uh, you know, the ranchers in maybe the Pacific. Now, in the next three chapters, things are going to fall rather quickly, and we're going to reach the climax in the next three chapters. But I will have to get to that in another episode, in another hundred pages. Thank you so much for listening, brothers and sisters. I um, really enjoying doing this, and I'm really, um, I love this novel, and I really love talking about it. So, really, thank you all for listening. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, share it with uh, friends, people that you think might be interested in it. Um, I would love to see the audience for this podcast expand. If you want to contact me directly, you can leave comments on the on Podbean right directly there, or you can email me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Well, um, so we'll see what happens with these characters in the next episode. Uh, I'll see you in 100 pages.